I'm Josie Rodriguez Boucher, and this is the Intersectional Fertility Podcast, where ideas and identities intersect to deepen our understanding of fertility and ultimately our whole selves. Dr. Sand Chang is a Chinese-American, gender-fluid, non-binary psychologist and trauma-informed DEI consultant residing on unceded Ohlone land, also known as Oakland, California. They are a certified body trust provider, certified IFS therapist, and certified EMDR therapist. Their career has been dedicated to body liberation, specifically with regards to trans health, eating disorders, and trauma recovery. Outside of work, Sand is a pun-off competitor, food top, and smoosh-faced dog enthusiast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sand. Thank you so much for having me, Josie. I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. So will you share with us your pronouns and where in the world you're joining us from today? Yeah, my pronouns are they, them, and I am living on unceded Ohlone land, also known as Oakland, California. Cool. And I am I would love to hear the story um, that led you to become a trauma therapist. Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I don't think I was intentionally trying to become a trauma therapist. And when I was in training to be a therapist, there wasn't an assumption that therapists needed to actually be equipped to deal with trauma. In fact, a lot of therapists were like, I don't work with trauma. And I didn't kind of consciously think I wanted to work with trauma. Mm-hmm. But in the things that I was drawn to, it led me to have to learn skills in dealing with trauma. So things like eating disorders, anything related to trans health, gender, sexuality, relationships. I mean, all of those things have so many, are so deeply affected by trauma, not just individually, but interpersonally, culturally, systemically. And being a non-binary person of color, working within my own communities, working with other BIPOC, um, trans folks, non-binary folks, uh, of course, living in a world that doesn't really affirm who you are, um, rates of trauma are going to be a lot higher, not right. because they're inherent to someone's identity, but because of experiences in the world and experiences of being told that either being told that it's not okay to be you or I'm experiencing violence. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And yeah, I was just, as you're speaking, I was thinking, I feel like everything needs to be trauma informed. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, trauma is so pervasive mm-hmm. and, and having a body yeah. requires interacting with other people and other bodies and mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Everything has to be trauma-informed. And I think in the field, there's still, in the field of psychology that I'm in, there's Mm -hmm. still a way in which therapists learn specific modalities to treat trauma. Mm -hmm. So trauma-specific treatments, 
and still can be not trauma informed. Wow. So, yeah. you know, I'm trained as an EMDR therapist, I'm training in somatic experiencing, and then my main approach is internal family systems or mm-hmm. IFS. Mm-hmm. And all of those are really wonderful tools for treating trauma. But the ways in which people are taught to use these modalities are not always coming from a trauma-informed lens. And I think a lot of times still operating on this idea that the client or the person that you're working with is, you know, white, um, Mm -hmm. not disabled, um, neurotypical, straight, cis, um, all of those things. And so a lot of that education doesn't actually teach therapists to be trauma-informed, including um, different aspects of what it means to be trauma-informed, like around touch, around Mm. consent, Mm -hmm. around understanding the ways that systemic oppression affects people and how that shows up in a power dynamic within a setting interpersonally or in a class setting Mm -hmm. um, or with clients. And so, yeah, I I feel really passionate about being able to bring more of that awareness um, to people who are healthcare providers. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's fascinating to think about that even trauma techniques are not taught through a trauma-informed lens. That's bananas. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it is bananas. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's unacceptable, actually. Because, that is unacceptable. You know, when someone entrusts us to work with their trauma, with their mm-hmm. system, um, they want to know that they can come in and not get harmed right further further you know, they would like to have a safe place to be able to work through the aspects of their experience that have not been safe right and so it's even worse when someone tries to work with a practitioner who really isn't trauma informed and then it's just adding more and more trauma and, yeah, yeah and can actually be really detrimental because that can lead someone to say it didn't work Right. Or what's the point right. um, when really there is so much possibility for being able to heal trauma yep. in the right context with the right person or right. right communities. Yeah, totally. And I would imagine too that like taking into account multiple oppressed identities and the intersection of that is also just not taught in schools. Yeah, it's not yeah. taught. And if it is, it's fairly... Um, kind of coming from that very, uh, I don't know, outdated, multicultural lens Mm. of keep in mind, people have these identities, but let's not talk about systemic oppression and violence and how it might show up right here. Right. right? Like in our interaction, not just out there in the world. Yeah. Um, So I think therapists can really bypass that part of it Mm -hmm. and just be like, I'm an ally. I'm going to help you with all these things you're experiencing out in the world rather than let me look at my own privilege. Let me look at the ways in which I'm enacting harm. Yep. Yep. Totally. Ugh. So important. And so I'm wondering more specifically, what drew you to specialize in body liberation and trans health and eating disorders? Yeah. So when I when I first got interested in doing eating disorders work, I really didn't have a lens mm. around what this, I didn't have a body liberation lens. I was, you know, doing my dissertation in the early 2000s and I was interested in eating disorders and I am out about being in recovery from mm. my own eating disorders And so it was just something that, you know, I had this kind of pull to Mm -hmm. do that work. 
And I knew that there was something that was limited in the ways that our like mainstream systems of psychology and psychiatry, like that, you know, the DSM mm-hmm. um, were framing eating disorders. I knew there was, uh, there were limitations and I was really interested in all the people who are suffering mm-hmm. from disordered eating, who don't meet full criteria yeah. according to the DSM. And I knew that there was something cultural, something gender related about it, but I really didn't have like a lens at that point to really think about it in the ways that it intersects with white supremacy, colonialism, anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I was interested in eating disorders. I also really delved into trans health again, you know, because of my own experiences, identities and communities and, mm-hmm. you know, um, wanting to, yeah, work within my communities. And um, I think I started to realize that there was this theme in all of my work, which is really wanting people to feel safe in their bodies mm. and to feel liberated. And through that work, I've gotten to just be exposed to a lot of great people doing the work who have really helped me to widen my lens mm-hmm. so that I could move away from my traditional training and looking at people as individuals and really looking at people more in context. I mean, it's something I've always been interested in, but it wasn't until I think probably the past five years that I started to connect the dots and mm-hmm. really understand more about even the intersections of disordered eating and living in a body that society really just can't tolerate. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, really not just, yeah, not just can't tolerate, but is actively violent toward. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, I think just the overarching concept of body liberation is what I'm interested in and that it might look different ways for different people. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. Have you come across this? I feel like current information that's available is being made now, you know, that that is very progressive, very radical, very inclusive and taking into account all these different intersections. It's like, there's no book on this stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, for me, it's been social media where I've found a lot of this information. Do you feel that way as well? Yeah. I talk about this a lot actually is that um, if I'm going to look at where I want to find the most radical or progressive or badass work being done, whether mm-hmm. it's trans health or disordered eating or anything else, really, I'm looking toward people who are creating new possibility models. I'm not looking toward academia. I'm not giving research that reverence that it has gotten traditionally. Mm-hmm. Mainstream fields of trans health and eating disorders are really steeped in colonialist, white supremacist, and um, as well as like very steeped in like global north mm-hmm. framework. Yes. And so that's not where I look. And right. I look towards people who are not necessarily, quote, experts. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't Mm -hmm. have letters after their name. They're not, you know, deeply involved with the academy. Right. And Mm -hmm. I would agree that a lot of really interesting um, messaging and developments are happening within social media. And I I do feel conflicted about social media. (laughs) It's really complicated. And I really, you know, at this point, I'm taking kind of a big break from it just Mm -hmm. because for my own well being. But I do think that I've learned a ton from people because social media is also a place where people with lived experience who don't have access to certain platforms yep. aren't given access to certain platforms right. um, can share. Yeah. And that is really 
that's like just so important to hear from people with lived experience. Yeah, totally. I find that too, um, that I'm looking more towards folks with lived experience and also like community workers Mm-hmm. who don't have, you know, like you said, like all the titles and the letters after their yeah. names. and Yeah. Yeah. There's so much wisdom in mm-hmm. community. And I think maybe we're at a time where there's more access to hearing these stories, these voices, yeah. and they've always existed. Right. Exactly. Right? They've always existed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I really coming from a place of immense privilege and being able to maybe move through academic circles or being someone who, you know, yeah, with the letters after my name and Mm -hmm. publishing all of that stuff, you know, I moved through that world and I don't really feel like I learn a lot there and I don't expand. And, um, and so I really see it as my, my responsibility, like ethically, Mm -hmm. um, and just as a person who cares about justice to, um, to really take a step back and try to listen to, um, you know, community voices. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. So I'm interested in a few of things, much, you know, a ton of different aspects of that, but, um, how does healing from diet culture specifically from eating disorders relate to trans and non-binary folks differently? than to cis mm. folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to say that it's like this for everyone, mm-hmm. but I will say some of the general themes that I've encountered in my work and maybe I can speak to from my own personal or lived experience mm-hmm. is that, you know, the the more traditional framework around eating disorders um, only really looks at, hey, here's someone who has a body and they don't think their body looks good like these other bodies. So they're going to engage in some kind of disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely part of the experience, but it's an oversimplified one. And it's one that doesn't take into account these really um, deep contexts and histories around how diet culture actually began, how it's rooted in Mm anti-Blackness and colonialism. And how it's not just a body trying to be like another body, it's specifically white bodies and those who are invested in the kind of power when you assimilate or have proximity to white whiteness, right. um, like actively trying to move away from having a black or a brown body mm-hmm. or a fat body. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of eating disorders treatment that doesn't even acknowledge how much anti-fatness is embedded. It's like even in eating disorders treatment, when someone is, you know, underweight through restriction or anorexia, they're told they need to go, you know, restore their weight, but there's often this messaging of, but not too much. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to want you to go over to that other end. And so there's a lot of fat phobia in the eating disorders field. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And to heal from diet culture, you know, we have to be looking at, you know, what what do we mean when we say diet culture is shorthand, right? Like in some ways, it's very important for us to call out diet culture. And in other ways, it's kind of a watered down mm-hmm. way of talking about these other systems of oppression, ableism, anti-fatness, anti-blackness. Right. And so, uh, and, you know, healing 
from from diet culture in the context of those systems means that the 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 environment has to change to support you. Mm-hmm. And most eating disorders treatment settings are not equipped to support anyone who isn't white, cis, all of the things, all right. you know, kind of have those dominant culture um, identities and privileges. Right, right. So I'm wondering too, like part of that like dominant culture body ideal would also be maybe um, enhanced by cis hetero beauty standards or relationship ideals, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think there's a lot that is about wanting to have a body that fits or Mm -hmm. feels aligned for you. And I think it's more than that for a lot of people Mm -hmm. um, because what's behind that, it's not just about aesthetics, right? It's about safety. Mm. It's about how you're moving in the world and the difference between someone reading you one way versus another based on the shape and the size of your body. Right. So that safety piece is left out. Mm -hmm. Um, The piece around, um, food insecurity mm-hmm. is left out. I mean, just the ways in which people, there's an assumption in eating disorders treatment that everyone has access. And right. if we just taught them the right skills, they would be able to access food and exercise and health, all these things that actually aren't available to everyone. Right. There aren't those material resources, financial resources, um, or access to the kinds of care that people need, whether it's medical care or specific eating disorders treatment. Right. Right. Yeah. And then it's almost like it puts the choice on the person who's seeking treatment where it's like, it might not be up to them. Yeah, exactly. It's um, really bypassing accountability Mm -hmm. in those settings. And, um, you know, I just, I, I see this a lot. If a treatment setting isn't the right fit, it's very easy to say, oh, well, the person was non-compliant or the, you know, they, you know, they have too much trauma. They got too dysregulated when people misgender them in treatment settings. I mean, there's just like all of that, right? That really is about blaming individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I'm wondering too, for um, queer and trans folks with eating disorders who are trying to conceive or would like to conceive, do you think that that body liberation journey is possible? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do. I do. <laughs> and it and it looks different for different people. Mm-hmm. It's really complicated. Mm-hmm. I'll just say it's really complicated to talk about fertility, family building, trying to conceive, all of these things in the context of trans health, specifically because mm-hmm. of um, not just long histories, but present day practices of forced sterilization. Yeah, and so there's echoes of that that feed into whether or not people feel that family building is accessible to them, right? Um, as well as a lack of role models for what that might look like. I mean, now I think there's more visibility, and there are people talking more about um, queer and, and you know, I think queer family buildings has, has been around longer in a more mm-hmm. visible way, but specifically trans folks who are um, either trying to conceive or going through some kind of assisted reproduction to, right. to build a family. And yeah, I think that body liberation is possible, but there's 
a good deal of carving out and doing labor to be able to build a system that is supportive because mm-hmm. like fertility clinics or uh, OBGYN departments, some of them are doing better than others. But for the most part, um, this is a very traumatizing experience for a lot of queer and trans folks yeah. is, is moving into a space that is not created for us. Mm-hmm. And then, and in such a vulnerable moment, like so vulnerable to be going in and, and, you know, it's, it's so in, it's invasive. It's mm-hmm. so private. It's related to one's body in in just such vulnerable ways. Yeah. And so those power dynamics, I think maybe people who work in those settings aren't really thinking about them that much. They're like, next, next patient. Right. 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 And so uh, when a queer or trans person comes in and they need something different, systems are not always flexible or don't have the education needed to be mm-hmm. able or the systems in place needed to be able to make that a positive experience. And so it's a hard thing to be wanting to do something like build your family mm-hmm. and do something that feels, you know, ideally expansive right. and like beautiful and at the same time be going through a trauma mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And how do you think folks can start that body liberation journey? I mean, one thing that maybe I can speak to concretely is that a lot of what's out there around family building, trying to conceive is really limited and really reinforces a very cishet norm Mm -hmm. and white norm. And it's something I've been wanting to talk and write more about is the ways that diet culture and trying to conceive culture are so intertwined. And so if you talk to anyone who's been in a trying to conceive process um, and they're trying to access information about what they should or shouldn't be doing to increase their chances of getting pregnant or being more fertile, those folks will inevitably come across a lot of, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, you should eat this, you should cut this out, this is bad. This It's, it's so individualistic mm-hmm. and it's so like, I just really, it, it's really horrible the ways that, you know, it kind of creates this illusion of control that's actually not there. Mm. There are so many factors that go into whether or not someone can conceive or carry. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm not I'm not an OBGYN doctor, so I don't want to say that I know everything about this. I do have a lot of experience navigating these systems, mm-hmm. both for with and for my clients, as well as my own personal lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I, you know, am starting to talk more freely about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense how intertwined those two things would be and how it could be triggering mm-hmm. for someone to hear what they should and shouldn't eat. Right. And for someone who has a history of disordered eating, that is a really dangerous place, yes. right? To be able to justify it through the lens of, well, I have to because I'm trying to get pregnant. Right. And, you know, your question was really how can people start that? I think looking for resources, looking for people who are outside of these mainstream, you know, system situations yeah. and looking for people that, will affirm your experience. 
So whether it's looking for other queer and trans folks who are in a family building space, mm-hmm. you know, there's been a lot of great resources, you know, over the years that I, I think uh, have been very necessary mm-hmm. for um, people in my communities. Um, what you're doing, this podcast, you know, <laughs> being able to talk about intersectional fertility, mm-hmm. so cool. So uh, yeah, it, it's so important because there's far more out there. Right. If you go to these like, weird websites yeah. <laughs> like so strange you know um it's like just it, it's i it's a very strange strange world in there <laughs> yeah it is yeah yeah that's something that um that i've been really aware of too is when i because i as an acupuncturist i recommend you know foods a lot and what to mm. eat in terms of you know bringing certain things back into balance and it's like oof i have to really yeah. like be very careful about how i suggest that yeah 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 because it can come across as yeah um this is good this is bad if you do this you'll get pregnant if you don't you won't get oh pregnant gosh. And, right you know, yeah just you know all like warm foods cold foods do this do that you know right so there, there's a lot there and there i understand you know that there is wisdom and tradition and a lot of you know experience behind a lot of these ideas and at the same time when we bring it to present day context mm-hmm. how do we balance that and um, not increase the amount of stress that someone is going through mm-hmm. in trying to conceive. Yes, yes, totally. Yeah, yeah. And there, you're right. There's so many factors. It's like you don't want to give the message that you know this is going to make or break your chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That can be so problematic. Yeah. And when I give um, recommendations to my patients, I always frame it. I'm like please, this shouldn't be more stressful, <laughs> you know, like yeah. adding to the stress of what you're already going through. Right, like, right. yeah, to use it as a guideline yeah. or, yeah. Yeah. And I think for queer and trans folks who are typically using assisted reproduction mm-hmm. a lot of the time, mm-hmm. not always, but right. a lot of the time using assisted reproduction and having to go outside of their homes Mm -hmm. in order to go through this process, you know, from the very beginning, it's just so important that people know that, that they have a right to have a a safer, a better experience than they're often given. You know, I think a lot of times people are just like, yeah, this system is shitty and I just have to go through this. I have to survive this. And that's such a hard thing, a hard place to be mm-hmm. um, when you're trying to be in a more generative space. Yeah, totally. Yeah. When I first reached out to you to be on the podcast, you'd mentioned that you'd like to share about your own experiences with the intersection of trying to conceive and gender and eating disorders. What would you like to share with us? Gosh, that is a that's a big question. So I, you know, maybe I'll just preface this and say that, you know, I've been sitting on this question for the past five years. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm very out as someone who is in recovery from disordered eating and Mm -hmm. has been for a long time. Um, I have not been as public about my own experience of trying to conceive and just what that experience did in my life and Mm -hmm. kind of flipped it all, like flipped a lot of things upside down for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not, it's not always an easy thing to talk about, but I have really been 
kind of sitting on this question of how do I talk about it in a way that might be helpful to other people? Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that there's a lot of people who are talking about eating disorders and trying to conceive culture and diet culture. And, you know, I certainly didn't have awareness of anything like that. I still don't know that there's a lot out there on this topic. And so it's something that I've been wanting to think and talk more about. Mm -hmm. And then specifically what it means to be moving through and accessing these spaces as a person of color, as a queer person, as a non-binary person. And there were so many experiences that I had that really added to um, stress and trauma Mm -hmm. in my system. And you know, think, you know, I was going through this with my former partner who, you know, we were trying to navigate these systems together as two trans and non-binary folks. And it was just pretty horrendous dealing <sighs> with health systems. Mm-hmm. Um, some were better than other, but better than others, but it was just uh it's like kind of like having to brace yourself every time you're interacting with these medical providers or these systems. And the ways in which like race and gender and the ways in which we were different and mm-hmm. accessing these spaces or read differently, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of fascination about my partner who was a white trans person, white trans masculine person. And so there was like tons of fascination with him that we were encountering. And I was like, I- I'm the one that's trying to get pregnant here, right? Oh my gosh. So there was that. There was the, you know, perpetual misgendering. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the ways in which, you know, I'm I'm kind of a person of extremes. So, you know, like I, I you know, when I set my mind on something, I really am like, I'm going to get that thing, which mm-hmm. is kind of intense. And I'm like, where did I get all this? You know, I know there's lots of different sources for that. But, you know, like I got real, really intense about all the things I should or shouldn't be doing. And I actually went into eating disorders, relapse and restriction Mm. because of it. I had so many rules. I was like, don't drink cold water. Don't have raw fruit. Like all these really intense things that actually came out of, you know, some of the instruction I was getting from Chinese medicine practitioners. So, so there was a lot there and there was a lot that, you know, in retrospect, you know, that, that time in my life, I was really going into a pretty serious trauma vortex. Mm. And so it's taken me years to be able to really talk about it. You know, I talk about it with friends and people in my life, but to talk about it more publicly Mm -hmm. and to want to support folks, especially trans folks, people of color Mm -hmm. with disordered eating who are kind of going through this very intense experience of family building. And, you know, in that process, needing to make sure that you're taking good, like the best possible care of your body, um, when there are a lot of forces that make it hard to do that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing this, um, your experience with us, I think it is so important and it's not, I feel like it's not talked about at all. I don't hear about this anywhere. Yeah. I mean, there's layers and layers. I gave you the short version, right? <laughs> but there's layers and layers of that. And I mean, I feel so strongly about helping and supporting other trans and non-binary folks in, in trying to conceive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. I mean, and you know, at this point, I don't really feel like I have regrets Mm -hmm. about that experience, but I do feel like I like learned a lot. And if there's some way that my experience can benefit others, that's what I want. Right, right. And I'm wondering, as a practitioner of Chinese medicine, what would be the best way for 
would it be best to not recommend food recommendations? Do you think? Honestly, I think it depends. I would try to do an assessment of mm-hmm. someone's history with restriction or rule-based eating right. to really get a sense because I think intuitive eating or really like listening to one's body, you know, doing, you know, like um, is, is so important mm-hmm. <laughs> at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think for a lot of people, it's probably not the best thing to get a list of, hey, stick to these foods and avoid these foods because right. it really can increase that like, yeah, rule-based disordered eating mentality. Yeah. So, you know, I'm personally not a fan of that. I'm definitely more a fan of, hey, listen to your body. Mm-hmm listen to what it's telling you in terms of what it needs. When you eat food, ask yourself, how did, how did that taste? Mm-hmm. Does it taste good? And how does it make me feel? Right. You know, just some basic questions instead of like, oh, you should have this. I mean, I had cut out so many food groups by the time, you know, I was actually going into, you know, an IVF process that mm-hmm. like, I think I was really not very nourished. Right. And I thought that I was, right? right? I was like, oh, I'm doing all these really great things and cleansing mm-hmm. my body and doing acupuncture and doing all these like gazillion things. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, definitely more air on this, not air, but like really kind of move towards that practice of really listening, oh, trusting, right? really trusting one's body. Yes. I know that's hard to do because not all of us feel like we can trust our bodies. Right. I know. Oh, this is such, um, I'm rethinking all everything I've ever done <laughs> in a really good way. Yeah. Yeah. This is yeah. so helpful. Yeah. I would, I would love to add that in to my process of just of figuring out what someone's background is on that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think there are some pretty um, fairly easy or simple questions that mm-hmm. could be asked to, to screen. Right. And I mean, even without a eating disorders history, though, I think, I think really just helping people to kind of understand what it means to listen to one's body. Because even people without eating disorders, totally, because they live in diet culture, yep. are going to be like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, and like, there are some things that I think are more common, right? Like cut out caffeine. Everyone cut out caffeine now. Right. You know, but then there's other things that are like, um, is this actually going to be helpful for you? You cannot possibly cut out every single thing that creates inflammation in your life. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, is that so much of what causes inflammation in our bodies and in our lives are actually not based on individual health choices. They're based on what our environments are exposing us to. Totally. So, you know, I think, again, it kind of creates that illusion of control. And then when people are not able to achieve what they want, mm-hmm. whether it's, oh, I want to lose weight, which is, you know, not really a possibility for a lot of people mm-hmm. um, in a sustainable way mm-hmm. um, or trying to conceive, you know, when that's not possible, then people blame themselves. Totally. Totally. And it's like when you're depending on someone else to tell you what to eat and what not to eat, it's like then you're giving up your own power too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. And it's very like heady. Yeah. It's like what what should I have? What should I be in the mood for right now? Right. I should eat that because it has a lot of, you know, omega-3 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. You know, and not to say that there isn't something to nutrition, you know, there's um sure. we need to be nourished. Right. And also, you know, um the preoccupation with that, the orthorexia, the healthism embedded in all that is actually, you know 
often really more detrimental than just listening to what do you feel like? What is your body right now? Yep. Yep. And taking the value off of food of like, Mm -hmm. this is good or bad. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Moralism. Moral. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that, you know, just name that idea of like clean eating, clean foods. I mean, that is so steeped in colonialism, right? right? Cleaning up someone's diet. Um, so that, you know, just, I, I think that's so pervasive in our society and even folks who are like radical, you know, um, still are very susceptible to these ideas of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, you know, treating your body like a temple and, you know, like, that's not bad, but like, yeah, but it's like the perfectionism. There's so much perfectionism involved in, I'm taking care of my body and this is what it needs to look like. And this is what it needs to look like for everyone then. Mm-hmm. Totally. I learned so much from you. I think it was last summer. I took one of your courses. Oh yeah. I've, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it was something like healing from oppress, like the oppressions of diet culture or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something I learned from you, which has really stuck with me is the history of that clean eating versus like quote unquote, like dirty eating yeah. can be, yeah. you know, like a lot of times, like how like indigenous culture, right. like foods were looked at. And yeah, could you exactly. speak a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, those words like clean and dirty are so loaded, yeah. right? They're not, it's not just hygiene or some, right. you know, food of something. It's, you know, that there is this history of settlers coming to this land and deciding that, you know, the ways that indigenous folks were eating was, was dirty right. and that they're, Foods need to be cleaned up and not just foods, like customs and ways of relating and genders and gender expressions, like mm-hmm. all these ways that, you know, there was this mentality around we need to teach people the right way to be and to exist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was this fear that if the white settlers, if they ate foods, indigenous folks' foods, that they would become more like indigenous people. Right. So that fear really, you know, was a lot of that motivation. It's like that terror, right? Oh my gosh. Um, And that fear. So really wanting to teach people like how to eat, like, you know, like we eat, like proper, properly. Right. right? (laughs) Yeah. So, and we can see how echoes of that are so pervasive in all sorts of um, things such as even eating disorders treatment or school lunch programs mm-hmm. or like all the places where people are taught, quote, like health or nutrition yeah. that is actually not objective mm-hmm. and not and, and you know, typically these approaches are not culturally responsive or sensitive. Um, they're just, you know, very limited and narrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Ever since I took that um, course from you, I've been thinking, I always watch my language around using even like the word healthy mm-hmm. for foods yeah. or, or yeah. ways of being. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can't, I, I don't know. I don't know that it's that we could invo- avoid the word health, right. right? Like the ways that we're talking about different uh, mental health, emotional health, mm-hmm. physical health. But I think the word healthy 
is really different. Like what that means needs to be understood as different Mm -hmm. for different people. And there isn't one way to be healthy. Right. It's not uh, the, yeah, it's not like um, a defined term that means the same to everybody. And also, you know, like we've been talking about, like the moralism around that, like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of, you know, kind of mentality, like messaging around like, oh, well, you know, um, like very anti-fat messages, like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you can be fat as long as you're healthy, right? like as long as you're like eating healthy or you're exercising, then you can be fat, right? Oh my gosh, right. Like all of this that's about, um, or like, oh, what's wrong with that person? They're not taking care of their health. Like there's a lot of judgment. There is. There's so much. And so, you know, yeah, I am someone who likes to take care of my body in certain ways, mm-hmm. But it's not about like, oh, I need to achieve some other person's standard of health. Right. Think about health is measured in these ways that are supposedly objective, but are incredibly flawed and subjective and biased, like Mm -hmm. the BMI. Like BMI. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. I was thinking about um, a friend of mine who uses the word with her little boy. She says, um, it's time to have some growing food. Instead of healthy food, and I was like, oh, I love that reframe. I'm just like, yeah, this food helps our body grow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've never heard that. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother like field of like, how do we raise? Not me, but how do how does right. one right. raise like children to mm-hmm. have you know a more attuned or less fraught, let's say, Mm -hmm. relationships with food. And, you know, there's some good work being done on like how to raise intuitive eaters or helping kids to really listen Mm -hmm. instead of take on all these diet culture rules. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I love something that I'm taking away from this conversation is an important thing to ask yourself or to ask someone is like, how did that feel? Or how does, mm-hmm. you know, to, to really tune into your body and ask what mm-hmm. it wants. And yeah. And I just want to say about that, that that's like, not necessarily an easy thing to do. Yeah. Right. Like totally. in a body that's traumatized, that doesn't always feel safe, that, mm-hmm. that you don't fully trust all the time. It's not as easy as like, oh, just listen to your body. Right. Like, we'll tell you what it needs. And that's the ideal. But, you know, most of us have been very disconnected um, from being able to access what I really believe is like, you know, most of us were born with some capacity to listen mm-hmm. and it gets taught out of it. Like, totally. we, we unlearn it. Mm-hmm. It gets, you know, let's say like, shaded over by the rights and the wrongs and the goods and the bads. Mm -hmm. Um, So I get it that it's not that easy, but I do think that it's a practice that can be developed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. First, you have to be willing to discard all these really misguided notions of what it means to have a good body. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's an, a process of unlearning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the favorite, my favorite places where I've been unlearning is the maintenance phase podcast. Oh my gosh. I love it so much. I love them so much. Yeah. It's brilliant. (laughs) I am such a huge fan I often am recommending that podcast because it's just so well done. It's brilliant. It's hilarious. Like I learn so much and it just, yeah, big yes. fan. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, cool. So a question that I love to ask all my guests is um, 
as listeners know, I teach that the the more that we're able to become connected to our essence or who we, you know, the our whole self, who we really are, the more access we have to our fertile potential or creative power. Do you have any personal practices or rituals in place that allow you to connect with the essence of who you are or your whole self? Mm, feels like a big question. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll say probably what I practice, you know, I, I have my own spiritual practice, my own meditation practice, and that is something that I rely on to be able to return to myself Mm -hmm. or recognize when I'm abandoning myself. So I would say that's really important. And then the other practice that's so prominent in my life, not, and it's, it's part of my work, um, but it's very much part of my life practice is um, the internal family systems model. Oh, cool. Um, So as an IFS therapist, you know, yeah, it's part of my work, but it's very much how I relate to myself and how I, you know, relate to my own, you know, embodiment and befriending of myself and returning to a sense of groundedness Mm. in, in who I am. Mm -hmm. And that is through being able to listen within to the different parts of me that need my care and my connection. Mm. And so, so yeah, that's, that's a huge part of my, my life and my practice at this point. Oh, I love that. I don't know much about internal family systems practice. Is it like kind of from what you just described, is it like an internal, like you have different relationships within yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, internal family systems or IFS is, is a therapy model. It's not a perfect one. Like it's, it's imperfect, like anything else, you know? Mm -hmm. So I want to just say, (laughs) and it is about, um, you know, there are some embedded assumptions in this is that we all have multiplicity. And something I like about that is that there, I have a lot of aspects of identity that are not necessarily, you know, congruent or consistent all the time. There's this recognition that we don't have to be, you know, one consistent being, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that um, there are these different parts of us that if we are able to listen to them and work with them and help them, that we can find a sense of inner harmony and not be so taken over by certain parts at certain times. So like the, it's hard, it's kind of hard to explain, but the idea is that, you know, I guess maybe one way to think about it is that I am a loving, you know, witness to these different parts of me Mm. that, you know, really need my care. Mm -hmm. Um, So some people might think of it as reparenting, People might think of it as like inner child work, but in IFS, there's like many, many children, (laughs) inner children and young parts (laughs) in there. Um, So yeah, and that's something that I have just started teaching to other queer and trans therapists, which is really delightful and like so beautiful and magical to have that space Mm -hmm. to learn this practice in in a space that's, yeah, not cis or white dominated. Yes, yes. Oh, that sounds incredible. I want to look into that more. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely like all about it, like yes. all the time. But also, I know that it's not, you know, some people might get sick of me talking about it. <laughs> I'm really into it. Yeah. I love it because it it makes room for all your different sides. Like I'm I'm picturing like a faceted gem, you know, where it's just like mm-hmm. it's not just one whole self. And it honors that 
there might be a part of me that feels a certain way, but there's another part of me that feels a different way. Right. And, I, and it's valuable to listen to all of it. Right. You know, in all of us, we say all parts welcome. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, let, let me just bring it back to an eating disorders context, mm-hmm. right? It's like a lot of traditional treatment with eating disorders or addictions is, oh, this eating disorder is out to kill me or my addiction is out to get me. And right. it really characterizes that part of someone as bad and destructive mm-hmm. when in fact so many of the things that may look destructive on the outside and yes, may create some real problems in someone's life um, are actually forms of survival and that these parts are actually trying to help us to yeah. cope and get through. And I'm so grateful for my eating disorder. I'm so grateful for my addictions that I've been in recovery from because without them, I would not have been able to survive certain points mm. and I wouldn't be the person that I am today. So, wow. you know, it really is about embracing and recognizing in a much more strength-based way mm-hmm. rather than um, this is bad. I need to kill off this part of me. Wow. That is so powerful. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> that is so powerful. It's it's like, yeah, it's like the opposite of, you know, feeling like I need to, you know, quote unquote, heal from this or cut that part of myself off. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like just feeling thankful for that part yeah. of yourself that got you through, yeah. you know, difficult exactly. times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, these you know, sometimes it may seem extreme, but Mm -hmm. maybe those are times when extreme measures were necessary. Totally. Totally. You're brilliant. Thank you so much (laughs) for having me. And yeah, of course. how can people find you and support you and sign up for all your things? Yeah, I do some social media. I'm on Instagram. It's Hey Dr. Sand. I've been pretty quiet recently because I've been tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do teach some, I have some online courses and you can find them through my website. I'm kind of between websites, right? I'm like making this transition. <laughs> so, you know, my website is sandchang.com, but eventually it's moving to shiftingcenter.com. Okay. And so, yeah, those are some ways that people can find me. Okay, perfect. And I'll include all that in the show notes as well. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Dr. Sand, so much. I learned so much. I know our listeners learned so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Josie. Really appreciate being able to, to meet with you. Absolutely. Y'all, I'm so excited to let you know that Fertile Registration is open. Fertile is a queer, trans, and non-binary centered five-week online program for folks with wombs to reclaim power over their fertility journey and conceive using my whole self fertility method. Healthcare practitioners and community workers, you are welcome to join us and become certified in the whole self fertility method. Head over to intersectionalfertility.com forward slash fertile to check out all the program details and register now. Sliding scale is available for all, and scholarships are available for Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority. Join us. It's going to be so much fun. I'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Intersectional Fertility Podcast. To get customized fertility recommendations based on your whole self fertility method element, join my mailing list at intersectionalfertility.com and get immediate access to my two-minute quiz. If you like the show and want to hear more, tap subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please leave us a review. It really, truly helps. 
The Intersectional Fertility Podcast is hosted by me, Josie Rodriguez-Boucher, and produced by Rosary Productions, with original music by Jen Cordy.